as we've been singing, I can't help but wonder how many of these songs the Apostle Paul would have clung to, very much so, as we jump into this next section of our study where he is, has been uh, arrested and will remain in prison for the rest of the time that we know him and until his death. And while maybe many of us haven't spent a great deal of time in prison, very much so many of us know what it is to need freedom, to need to have the freedom that God promises to those who follow him. We're not sure, I'm not sure what that looks like with you. I'm well aware that there are a multitude of concerns and stresses and to-do lists and hurts and pains that come into this room today. And I am comforted by what we see, even in these songs that we sing. The Holy Spirit that resides within each of God's children is what you need for that. We cannot take away from that. I hope that comes through in our study. Would you bow with me in prayer one more time? Gracious Father, we look to you with an appreciation for the Holy Spirit. How sweet and special and unexpected it was when it came into this world. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that would be our teacher today, and we would ask for just that, that there would be lessons taught, even that I would have no idea that uh, would be taught, and I did not intend but we thank you that even as we sometimes don't know the words to pray and the Holy Spirit would pray on our behalf, I would ask that you would preach a message right to the hearts of some today that would need it, exactly what they would need. We thank you for the supernatural power of your word, and we would ask that we would clearly worship as we learn from you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. There are a handful of things that frighten me as I approach a teaching ministry. One of those that I guard against, and some of you will recognize certain key words that I will use sometimes. I have um, a genuine fear of God that I would teach something that God did not teach. That I would say, thus saith the Lord, when he didn't genuinely say it. Because... When I do that, I'm not doing right as a teacher, as one that's a student of God's word and one that stands in a shepherd position at this church, but also very much so the hearers of that will go and will just continue to repeat that, maybe until they studied out for themselves. I can remember very vividly a uh, Sunday, can, maybe some of you can remember some Sundays, even in your youth, very vividly, after a church service. Let me tell you why I remember this specific Sunday. I used to go on a regular basis to my Uncle Jack and Aunt Pat's house for a Sunday dinner. And I can remember one time we were sitting there and we were having the meal and it was a great time. We always laughed a lot and had um, a wonderful family time. But I can remember my Aunt Pat, who I love and adore, and she said something that took me back. Because we were sitting there talking and she talked about the morning message and she said, that's not what the Bible says, what that preacher said. That pastor said something, and that's not what it said at all. And then she went on. Now, as a, I think I was about 17 years old, I didn't know how to handle this. That was, that was just throwing me way off. Hang on a second. Should I defend the pastor? Should, I mean, my aunt, she was the one giving me food, so I really was tempted to defend her more so. <laughs> what do I do with this? 
And as I have said before, and as I will continue to say, I consider it a success for me if I do something of driving you to the scriptures to study for yourself. And I am not insecure knowing that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit with you. Knowing, knowing that you have the Holy Spirit to teach you. Let me reverse back a few weeks and talk about a message that I gave and really the takeaway of the message because I think it was Mother's Day is when I gave this message and the um, takeaway from this was finding God's will. Some of you were here for that and um, it was a, a very challenging message and very timely. In fact, I had someone approach me that was going to speak at a Bible college and he said, boy, I'm gonna speak at a Bible college. What should I speak on? What do you hear more of anything else? And this topic is the topic that gets preached on at the, at the school where I went to anyway, more than any other topic. How to find God's will. And I suspect that many of you also would say this is a very appropriate topic for us. I was just talking to a couple people right before the service, talking about the future of their job and, and retirement and what to do here. And oftentimes we get put in this spot. So let me go ahead and tell you why um, sometimes my ears are burning after I preach a sermon, because I know some of you are talking around your dinner tables about me. That's fine. That's a safe place, I know. Number one from our takeaway was to find God's will, you need to know and apply God's word. We cannot substitute anything for this. Number two was gain confidence as you grow in your sanctification. So the idea here is as you are being faithful and growing in your Christian walk, you need to have confidence that God is using those experiences, those um, trials and errors and mistakes as, as long as you're learning from, from them, part of your sanctification. The next one is to seek advice from godly men and women. And then finally, and this is the one that came up in my ABF group on Mother's Day, because as we sat around and we talked about this, we talked about God's will, and one person said, yep, 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 and they said, boy, I'm sure glad you mentioned that one last. Listen to your conscience. Why would somebody say, I'm glad you mentioned that one last? Why would they say that? When we think of our conscience, there is no doubt that some people are following their conscience, kind of like this Jiminy Cricket uh, character, cartoon character. And so if their conscience tells them, then they can do anything. When we think of our conscience, I want to suggest to us that if our conscience is being used as God designed it, then it is trustworthy. But I want to caution us a little bit today because we're going to see the Apostle Paul standing before a group of people and he talks about his conscience and how he speaks in a way where his conscience is clear. And so if our conscience is being used as God designed it, then it is trustworthy. But what if you've messed up your conscience? What do we do with that? The Bible does talk a little bit about this. And I want to encourage you that if you have messed up your conscience, you better not put too much credit in the fact that you can lay your head on your pillow at night and sleep soundly. There are plenty of rascals out there, if I can use that word, that sleep just fine at night. And our conscience is going to have to line up with these other things. It needs to line up with God's truth. And so I would ask you the question, is it possible to think that you're actually doing right? Is it possible to think that you are pleasing God and honoring God and actually be doing wrong? How can your conscience get messed up? The Bible does say a few things about this. 
It talks in a few different places. It has a lot of good things to say about conscience. I've listed here some of the ways that your conscience actually um, can give you a reason to pause. All right? And I'll just say a quick word about these. Just this morning I went through and I said I better explain this a little bit deeper. How can your conscience get messed up? Three of these can apply to you as followers of Jesus if you are one today. One of them doesn't apply to you. It applies to un the unsaved. Number one, you can have a weak conscience. That teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 where they're talking about um, that someone who is a young believer needs to not violate their conscience. And there's that whole, can I eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols argument. And so there are weak believers. And so they might have a struggle, have a weak conscience. An individual who's following Christ can actually have a defiled conscience. Titus 1.15, and I think this talks about a wrong view of Scripture. When you look at Scripture and you have a wrong understanding of it, or maybe ignorance of Scripture, that's a defiled conscience. This third one, you can have an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22, this is referring to unbelievers. I think it would be very fair to say unbelievers that are among us. People that would come to church that are not genuinely followers of Jesus Christ. And then finally, you can have a seared conscience. This can mean a couple different things. It could mean seared. We're familiar with that word. Maybe if you're a, um, a person that likes to grill out a lot and you make a steak, you might have seen that you need to sear that thing so it'll seal in all the juices right away. I'm sorry if I'm making anybody hungry right off the bat here. Searing. You can have a seared conscience. and That, mean, that can mean seared by sin. But I also think if you read 1 Timothy 4.2, that can be talking very much so about focusing on the wrong thing. If you want to use my language that I refer to all the time, it can mean majoring on a minor. So something that might be good, might be helpful for a church, but it gets totally out of balance and it becomes the tail wagging the dog. And individuals can get focused on the things that should not um, be focused on as a major. And I think that's fair to say when you read 1 Timothy 4 2, something is being applied there, that they are focusing on the wrong things. All right, how can you, like the Apostle Paul, have a good conscience? That's what you want, right? You want to have a good conscience. I think one of my favorite quotes that I read when I was studying through this was by Mark Twain. Mark Twain famously said, the man who has a clear conscience probably has a bad memory. And some of us can <laughs> empathize with that. In order for us to look at this well and understand what Paul was saying, we need to define it. And this is a great definition of conscience. Don't think Jiminy Cricket. I can work in all kinds of cartoon characters. Some of us grew up where you had the cartoon character with the one um, uh, character dressed like a devil on this shoulder and the one dressed like an angel on this shoulder. And they were talking back. Remember that one there? Yeah. But you, you knew who to listen to there, right? I mean, if you're listening to the guy in that little red suit with horns, you know you're choosing to do wrong. I think when our conscience is not doing well, when we've messed it up, it doesn't come in a nice bright red suit. I think sometimes we can buy into thinking we're doing right even as we're doing wrong. Here's the definition. Conscience is that which makes a moral judgment on your actions. I think it's fair to say that everybody has a conscience, believers and unbelievers. And I will differentiate between those two in just a moment. But this is a good definition for us. Conscience is that which makes a moral judgment on your actions. I gave four scriptures that talk about how your conscience can be messed up. I will give you some references that are good towards your conscience. One of them is Romans 2.15. 
Romans 2.15 tells us regarding our conscience that we, uh, when we come to our conscience, it either accuses us or else it excuses us. That's what the Bible says about our conscience. And so if you have a weak or defiled or seared conscience as a follower, then your evaluation is very likely going to be wrong. So as you grow and as you mature, understand that you can be going the wrong direction and think that you're going right. By the way, who is one of the chief examples that we have seen in the book of Acts that actually thought he was serving God and doing God a wonderful work when actually he was working against God? It's who we're studying here, right? Remember the Apostle Paul? Remember on the road when the bright light blinded him and God said, why are you kicking against the goads? Kind of an interesting um, phrase there. Kicking against the goads, it means that as the wagon is moving along, that the animal is actually kicking back against the one that is driving the cart. And that's what Jesus told the Apostle Paul the first time he visibly appeared to him. And in our text today, we're going to see another time when Jesus appears to the Apostle Paul. So when someone becomes a Christian, I think it's fair to say, here's how we differentiate for a conscience between the believer and the unbeliever. When someone becomes a Christian, it's fair to say that the conscience is purified by the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit that is purifying your conscience. And the Holy Spirit is going to work in conjunction with the conscience to send a message, to send you a message that either something is right when you're doing it, or else there's something within you, maybe in your gut, you might call it, that's giving you a red flag, that's telling you to stop. And I think that this is why it's harder for believers. When sin comes into a believer's life, I think this is why it's weightier for a follower of Jesus Christ. When someone has sin, known sin, and they don't want to give that up, I think it's very, very hard and the Holy Spirit does something within us. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit um, working to convict us and God as a father that rebukes his children. So what's a good thing for you to say to be like the Apostle Paul? Well, you can say this. My conscience is telling me that my acts are morally acceptable to God and his purposes. Clearly, there needs to not be sin involved here. But can I go a step further? Because you can do things and maybe you have a clear conscience and maybe there wasn't sin involved. Let me go a step further with this because I put on the, on the screen here, it needs to be intentional. You need to be having an understanding that as you are about to move forward with something, as you are about to do something, it needs to very much so go hand in hand with what God wants you to be doing. If I can say this, there's nothing neutral. And you can debate this if you want. Nothing neutral in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. In all things, we are supposed to be bringing glory to God. So when we say something to someone, and we say, well, I didn't even, I didn't even think of it. I didn't even think that that might hurt you. Or I didn't think that might be a problem. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus with all of our actions. And we need to be using all of those in a way where they can be good works that we can be rewarded for. So be very intentional about what you're doing. Your conscience is not only your judge, but, and some of you have found this out, your conscience acts as your judge, but it also acts as your executioner sometimes. Many individuals suffering from psychological problems because of this idea that they are doing something they should not be doing. 
and the Holy Spirit convicting them. And some will even have tremendous ulcers because of, it, of this. I knew one girl that got cold sores and her conscience was making her sick. 2 Corinthians 1.12 is another reference that talks in a positive way about our conf- conscience. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, For our boast, Paul writes, is in this, the testimony of our conscience. And I can remember as clear as day, standing and talking with an individual who, in my opinion, had sin. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I want to let you know, I sleep as, as sound as a baby at night. I don't have any trouble sleeping at all. And I just thought to myself, the pain that he caused here, the pain that he caused here, in my opinion, what was wrong here? And I think there was a seared conscience that was in that situation. And I would pray for him. And I am glad personally that God is patient and merciful with me. And I think if you're honest today, you would say you are glad that God is patient and merciful with you. And so how do we move forward with this? What can we do? All of this to bring us to our text. If you're not already there, turn to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, and we're going to go through um, a longer portion of this scripture. Um, Acts has been a narrative for the most part, so as we study this, it's been an ongoing story. And um, in the time that we have left, uh, we're going to bring us back, hopefully, to this story because we're stepping right back into Paul's life I already mentioned he's going from being a free man to being an arrested man. And there are so many things. I think conscience is a one good application from this, but you might pull several applications from this. And so we're going to look starting in verse number 20. We're going to back up to 21. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And we're going to um, look at what Paul goes through here. Let me give you just a pinch of background before I read verse 20. It's been a, a couple weeks. So the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem He's there, he helps with these individuals that are keeping a vow, and as he goes, he's in the temple, and they grab him, and they start to beat him to death, you'll remember this, and so the temple was right next to the Roman fortress, so they go down, and they save Paul's life, and they grab him, and we've already talked about how the apostle Paul, he spoke to the soldier, and he could speak Greek, which kind of threw him off, he thought this guy was an assassin, Um, a guy who was hiding out in the wilderness that led people that would sneak up and kill others in the crowd. And so he lets Paul speak to the crowd because Paul asks nicely. Paul speaks to this mob, this crowd. He's now kind of protected a little bit. And he speaks to them, and he speaks in the language of the people. He gains an audience with them. He speaks in Aramaic. And as he's talking to them, they listen to him up until they hear one word. Maybe some of you remember what that one word that he said was that turned them off. We'll see it in verse 21. Look with me in Acts twenty-two twenty-one, 21, where it says, And he said to me, this is the end of his speech, so we'll come to an end quote at the end. And he said to me, talking about God, Go, for I will send you far away to the, what? Gentiles. Up to this word, verse 22, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Let's go ahead and stop right there. When this group at the temple heard the word Gentile, there was a trigger that was pulled. I think I can relate it to you and I pretty well. If you have a similar stand on the Bible than I do, um, I have had a practice in my life 
over the past 10 years of not automatically building up a wall with everybody that's not in my church or my denomination or I know exactly all about them. But instead, if someone calls themselves a Christian and we're having conversation about Christian things, I try to keep those walls down until there's a reason to have doubt or to have a red flag go up. If you are like me, there will be some things that someone might say when you're talking about the Lord or talking about church. That would be a red flag. So he mentions the word Gentile here, and then his speech is done. If you're talking with someone that's a Christian, and they say something like this, well, yeah, Jesus, he died on the cross, but you don't really believe that Jesus was God, do you? Part of the Trinity. Right away, your defenses would go up, right? Or if someone said, yeah, the Bible, man, I love the Bible, it's a great book. But of course, we've got a few other books that are just as important as the Bible. Right away, if you're like me, you would have some flags go up. You would no longer have the same credibility with that person that you're talking to. You would automatically even wonder, I wonder if they're genuinely a follower of Jesus. If they don't agree on those major things. That's what the word Gentile is like here. Paul lost all credibility. But... The Roman soldier who had gone in and took him and saved his life, they have him. He lets him speak. It doesn't get him anywhere. But, as they used to say, we have ways of making you talk. The Roman soldier is about to take Paul in and to make him talk. Listen, this is not a punishment that we're reading about here in the next few verses. This is just an interrogation. This guy clearly has done something wrong. They're trying to kill him, so he is going to get the answer for a while. Look in verse number 24 with me. And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by what? Flogging. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they, this is brilliant, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also, don't, catch, don't miss this, was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So there's a lot in this section right here that we see. We find that the tribune who was over 10 different centurions, how many soldiers was a centurion over? A centurion was over 100 soldiers. Tribune over 1,000 soldiers. They want to get answers for what this guy had done wrong. They don't know he's a Roman citizen. And for some of you, maybe your mind went right to our Lord Jesus Christ. When they stretched him out, we've seen some movies that have really portrayed this vividly. And for me, in The Passion of Jesus Christ, that's the worst part of that movie to watch, and I will regularly fast forward through that part. When they stretch out Paul, and they're about to flog him just to get the answers. I don't think the Romans bluffed. I think that rumor got around. If you're going through this, you're going to give the answers one way or another. So they thought that Paul would right away say what he had done. And the commander is going to get some answers. By the way, the commander, once he finds out he's a Roman, now he has to have something to accuse him of. 
You could not flog a Roman citizen, nor could you bound a Roman citizen, bind him, without some kind of an official charge. And what charge does the soldier have at this point? Nothing. He's got nothing. And he almost makes a huge mistake here. And so he orders the scourging not as a punishment, but to make him talk. He nearly makes a huge mistake. And then when he finds his mistake, and Paul's smart, isn't he? I think from the time they would have came and rescued me from the mob the first time, I would have been shouting, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm a Roman citizen, and keep me safe. And he holds on to this. Paul was very shrewd, which is a good takeaway for you and I from studying Paul's life. Very, very shrewd. And the commander needs to get an answer, but now he can't flog him, so he's got another answer. I'm not sure what to do with this guy. I can't get an answer. He tried talking to the crowd, and they went nuts. We almost flogged him, and I would have gotten big trouble because he was born in Rome. But I've got something else up my sleeve. Let's see what it is in the next verses here. Verse, uh, I think I'm behind on my slides. If you're taking notes, there you go, and there you go. Verse number 30, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought, down, he brought Paul down and set him before them. Look at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who struck him or those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people let's go ahead and stop right there we're seeing what's happening and the soldier says okay i've got to i've got to have a charge i've already bound him i can be in trouble already so i'll take him into the sanhedrin the jewish council they know how to do these things these are leaders of the pharisees and of the sadducees and of tribes made up of 70 people plus the high priest and so they would be there and by the way let me just give you the stewardship, if I can call it that, that this Sanhedrin had as far as the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, an appointment to the Sanhedrin was a lifetime appointment. You could not lose it. So going back about 20 years, Paul would have been not in this group, but he would have known people. Paul would have went to school with, in Gamaliel school with probably some of these. They would have known him. Some of them would have loved Paul when he was the chief persecutor of what? Of the church. And so they knew, a, lot of, a lot of them knew this guy, even though it had been a couple decades. But the Tribune says, he, he calls an informal time, so they're not in their regular meeting place. Theologians tell us it was probably in the, in the, in the lower part, the basement, as they meet together. And the Sanhedrin had heard Jesus Christ give them the truth. This is their stewardship. They had heard Jesus Christ Talk about being the Messiah. They had heard Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 talk about it. They had heard the 12 apostles talk about it. The Sanhedrin had heard Stephen talk about it. And now they are hearing Paul talk about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. You talk about some good preachers. Stephen, Paul, Christ. 
these one, Peter, I mean, these ones that stood before, they had heard the truth from the best preachers they were. And many in this group would know him. And Paul stands up and he says, my conscience is clear. And what's the response of the high priest? He orders him to have somebody standing near him pop Paul right in the mouth. I think it was a punch from what I see. Somebody says it could have been a, with something. Why would he do this? It's, it's breaking the law. Paul is smart. Paul knows this. Paul responds in a way that I think is sin. Good men disagree on that. He pops him in the mouth. I have a friend that um, years ago was going through a job interview. He was in law enforcement, and he was trying to do something different, but everybody there was in the law enforcement field. And as he's sitting there, and as he's going through the interview, he's ready for the questions, he wants to answer them. And the first question that they asked him was this. It's kind of odd. They said, how many push-ups can you do? And he said, oh, about 50. And they said, okay, drop down to 50 push-ups right now. And so this guy drops down during his job interview, does 50 push-ups right there because that's what he said he could do. He gets done and then immediately they start to fire the questions at him. Why would they do that? It threw him off, right? He's not comfortable. He's totally out of his realm. It's like, it's like he just got done with some kind of a huge chase and now he's got to answer those questions. That's what my mind went to with this here. I think the high priest sees Paul and I think they say, let's just see how good this guy is. Pop him in the mouth when he says this line here. And so he has somebody punch him in the mouth. As we see this, we see that Paul responds, in my opinion, incorrectly. When Jesus got struck, he did not revile those who struck him. I think that Paul was very clear about the teaching to turn the other cheek. I think he knew that. But Paul was not the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He responds in a human way here. And I think when we come to the end, when Paul is going through incredible discouragement, I think that's part of the reason why. All right, let's go ahead and move on. And uh, let's talk about the division of the council. So some people talk about this next point here. And they say Paul was so smart that very clearly he wanted to get out of this situation. He divides the council. Look in verse number 6 of Acts 23. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes, I hope you're using your imagination as we, as we read this. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid, that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. All right. Second time, they had to go down and rescue Paul from being maybe beaten to death. We find a division. 
Here, is the, here are the two different sides to this. I already mentioned some people think that Paul, and the Bible says it, he perceived that part were Sadducee, part were Pharisee, and so what he says next seems very intentional. Some people would say that Paul very much so wanted to just divide them and get out of this right now. I have a different opinion. Because as I've studied Paul and as I've seen his heart, you can judge for yourself, but as I see Paul and I see his heart, he was traveling to Jerusalem for all of those months and he was taking, he had two goals in mind. One was to take this offering from the Gentiles to the Jews and the other goal was to preach the gospel to preach to the Jewish people. I think he had tried that. He said the word Gentile, they shut him up. And I think right here, he mentions the word resurrection, which is the dividing point. That's where they will no longer listen to him when he says resurrection. And the contention between the two became so strong that he was almost torn to pieces. And Paul is very shrewd. Maybe he did divide the group to save his own skin. But I think that, and this is gonna seem... This is deep. Are you ready? Hang on. If you're taking notes, get ready. I think the Apostle Paul mentioned the resurrection because he wanted to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that was his heart. I think that's what we see again and again. And when difficult times came up, he always wanted to preach Christ. He did what he could to talk about the resurrection. And we're going to see it again when there are, later on in our study, there are three accusations made against him later on. And he says, I'm not guilty of this one. I'm not guilty of this one. But you know what I am guilty of? The third one. I'm guilty of saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. He owns it. And I think here he wanted to talk about the resurrection. And I think that he regrets responding like he did the high priest because as soon as he did that, I think it was done. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you're talking to them and you go too far and so honestly the conversation's over. Even if you're still talking back and forth, the legitimate conversation's over. He's not listening to you anymore. Or they say something to you and honestly the conversation's over. You're not listening. Maybe you're just waiting for them to pause so you can fire back at them. That's what happened here. He lost his audience, I think. And I think he regrets it. Because the Apostle Paul, one of my heroes, maybe the hero of some of you, goes, and not that night, but the next night. So for a full night, he finds himself in the mire and in misery and depressed and discouraged. And that's why Jesus Christ does what he does in the next point. He's so discouraged that we find verse number 11. And... I am trying to finish the book of Acts by the end of summer. This is a whole message right here. When we look at verse number 11 of Acts 23, look at it with me. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God appears to Paul and says, Take courage. This is one of the, I believe, five times that he physically appears to Paul and encourages him. He doesn't tell him exactly how it's going to happen. He doesn't say, you're not going to get scourged. You're not going to get arrested. You're not going to get popped in the mouth again. That's not what God says. God just says, take courage. You are going to testify in Rome about me. And that's where we're leaving Paul, discouraged. And yet, now he's encouraged because God said this. And it does not matter what he's coming up against. 
And we're going to wrap up here, but let me just tell you what he's coming up against. There were dozens of people who are going to make a plot to kill him. Dozens that are going to kill him. And in response, your God and my God activates hundreds of people to protect him. He's going to Rome. And God has all the resources in the world to make this happen. And Paul, up until that point, could speak in good conscience. But I can't help but think that he would say, what about my soldier friend that I thought maybe was becoming tender to Jesus Christ and his message? Have I lost an audience with them? What's he going to do? Let's go ahead and close this up and let me give you a few takeaways. What can you do from this? These are going to look suspiciously familiar. How can you have a good conscience? All right? And just because you can't sleep at night doesn't mean you don't have a good conscience. I understand that, okay? Some of you eat too much pepperoni pizza, keeps you awake at night. I understand that. Having said that, some of you need to pay very close attention and take notes here. The takeaway was apply godly disciplines so that you can walk with a clear conscience in this world. What are these disciplines? Regularly learning from God's word. You know, it sounds like a broken record around here sometimes. You need to be studying God's word. You need to be reading the Bible. You need to have something. Maybe you have found something at some point in your life and it was just like it was the mountaintop of your Bible study and now you're not there. And if I could only get that season back in my life or that, that Bible program or whatever it was, can I suggest to you that even if you can't get that back, you need to do this. You need to guard everything that you do through your study of God's word. Number two, you need to be consistently growing along in your journey. That means you learn as you live. It means you make mistakes. It means you, oh, this is, this is rough. It means you sin. And if you're not learning, you're going to sin again just like that. But if you're following God and you do something wrong and you're walking in humility, you can say, you know what I did 10 years ago? And I'm different than that now because God has grown me. You need to be growing through your sanctification and allowing that to encourage you in your conscience. And then number three, you need to get counsel from godly people. Surround yourself with godly men and women. That will tell you that you've done something wrong. That would call you on the rug. And then also by praying. Now, some of you who are paying attention We'll go back to that Mother's Day message and say, these look very similar to those takeaways. Pastor Jeremy's getting kind of lazy, just doing the same takeaways as that Mother's Day message. Let me just encourage you with this. There's no substitute for these. If you do not have a practice of taking in God's word on a daily basis, not just reading it, not just giving it a kiss on your way out the door, but diving into the rich, deep truths of the scriptures, you should not count on finding God's will nor having a good conscience when you're going through your actions. You need to let the instruction from God's word guide this. You need to be growing. The embarrassing picture of someone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ and they are still on the milk of the word. They are still a baby in Jesus Christ. I know that's rough, but what kind of a pastor would I be when I say, yeah, sure, you got your ticket to heaven, just chill until God takes you home. You need to be growing, working for him, doing good works, running everything through that counsel of his word, but also by the good works that you're doing. Let people judge you by your works. Let them look at your life and say, my goodness, what's different about this one by the actions that they do? 
Surround yourself with godly men and women and pray. Pray before, pray after, pray during. I hope you have this ongoing dialogue through the Holy Spirit to the seat of, the, of God the Father where Jesus Christ is, right to God the Father, and he hears every word you say. This is what you need, and I would pray for you and for me that I could stand in a difficult group and have a hard conversation so that I could talk about the resurrection in some way and I could say, I have a clear conscience. The Apostle Paul did. And what a difference it made. And what a difference it will make in your life when you get to the end of your day and you don't have to worry about, did somebody see me do that? I think this was wrong, but I'm not sure. To live with a guilty conscience is a horrible, horrible thing. It can bring physical problems, but more important than that, it can be something that is a barrier between you and that beautiful journey that God wants you on, the race you're supposed to be running. It will stop that. And there is nothing more important than you and I are to be doing than that journey. Don't let these get in your way. Don't let your conscience get in your way. What a blessing it is to see the Apostle Paul, and I'm not going to preach another whole sermon. God came to Paul at this low point, and God said, I am with you. How beautiful is that? Next time we will look at the providence of God and how sweet it is to walk in the fear of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? <clears throat> Father, you've seen this day even before we came to it. You put these words down and thousands upon thousands of church families have examined them, studied them to see what they mean. And God, I would ask that very clearly as we look at Paul's life <coughs> that we would be able to be inspired to say this is a hero of mine and to do what we can in the place where we are at. We thank you that we are not alone in this. We're surrounded by the church that you have given us. Help us not to forsake it. And we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to convict us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm going to ask Ron if he would just play just a short stanza. This is your chance to pray. If you are here today, you are not a Christian, follower of Christ, saved, a believer, however you want to say it, you can take care of this right now. Because of the work on the cross, you can turn your life over to Jesus. And if you're not sure what words to say, ask God. He knows. Maybe you're here today and you need to talk to God about something else, something you don't want to talk to me about. Take this time to do that.